Policymakers have really scrambled to outlaw substances that can sometimes regain legal status with a modest change in chemical makeup. Some of the new drugs even masquerade as such innocuous, perfectly legal products as air fresheners or potpourri. The question we're debating today is several, really, is can these new mind-altering substances be outlawed without resorting to tortured legal rationales? Are there alternatives to a prohibitionist strategy? Or could policymakers better promote public safety by requiring strict production standards but not attempting to ban their use? In this recent Cato policy analysis, we have copies outside uh, this room if you'd like a copy. And for those of you watching online, this is also available online. This new study by uh, Cato senior fellow Ted Galen Carpenter examines the issues that we'll be talking about today. Uh, I'm very pleased to welcome him here. Uh, his remarks will be followed by comments by Eric Sterling and Jacob Hornberger. Um, first, though, a few words about my friend and mentor, Ted. Uh, Ted Galen Carpenter is a senior fellow for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. He served as Cato's Director of Foreign Policy Studies from 1986 to 1995, and then as Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies from 1995 to 2011. He's the author of nine and the editor of 10 books on international affairs, including uh, The Fire Next Door, Mexico's Drug Violence and the Danger to America, and Bad Neighbor Policy, Washington's Feudal War on Drugs in Latin America. Those are both directly relevant to uh, this topic more, more broadly. Uh, among his other books include Smart Power Toward a Tr Prudent Foreign Policy for America. He is a contributing editor to the National Interest and serves on the editorial boards of Mediterranean Quarterly and the Journal of Strategic Studies, and is the author of more than 600 articles and policy studies. His articles have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, Los Angeles Times, Financial Times, Foreign Affairs, and many others. He's a frequent guest on television and radio, not just here in the United States, but also in Latin America, Europe, East Asia, and elsewhere. He received his PhD in US diplomatic history from the University of Texas. And with that, Ted Carpenter. Thank you very much, Chris. Uh, he's certainly correct that uh, this is a timely topic. It seems like uh, every time you turn around lately, there is a major news article about synthetic drugs and the uh, alleged threat to public health and safety. Now, my study focuses on designer drugs, which is a subset of synthetic drugs, artificial uh, substances that mimic the effects of, of traditional mind-altering drugs. Now, synthetic drugs have been around for a number of decades. Uh, we certainly am, are familiar with the uh, methamphetamine phenomenon in the United States, and that's been around for better than three decades. And if you go back even farther than that, uh, back to the 1960s and the flap over the use of LSD, so this is not a new issue per se. What we have seen, though, in the past five years or so is a new family of synthetic drugs. Those are the ones I call designer drugs. And there are two major categories. There are some exceptions to this, but two major categories. 
One synthetic marijuana, often goes by the name of K2 or spice, and then bath salts, which mimic the effects of cocaine, and uh, flaca, F-L-A-K-K-A, is probably the best known of that category. Now, as Chris indicated, a lot of the designer drugs are marketed as perfectly legal substances, everything from potpourri to air freshener to pet food, and most of those substances are explicitly labeled not for human consumption. Well, let's just say people have disregarded those warning labels uh, with a vengeance. And the increased use of designer drugs, and most of those are coming from production sites either in Mexico or even more commonly now, suburban sites in China and then shipped over to the United States and other markets. As use levels have risen, the news media stories have also surged, often with uh, scare headlines about the dire, dire threat to public health and safety. Now, there's no question there's been a surge of use in so-called designer drugs. Just accessing the data on uh, visits to emergency rooms or poison control centers and so on will show there's been a tremendous surge over the last five, six, seven years. And the drug prohibitionists argue that this poses an especially serious threat to children. John Sherbensky, who is an official of the Drug Enforcement Administration, insists bluntly, and I quote, the biggest user population of these drugs are 12 to 17-year-olds. And his rationale for that is that because these drugs, at least until recently, have had a, an aura of legality and that they were very easy to get. Therefore, children were especially prone to use them. I was always extremely skeptical about that argument. Uh, for one thing, children, and usually by that we're talking about teenagers, have had very little trouble getting access to explicitly illegal substances over the years. If you visit any high school in America, I assure you within 15 to 30 minutes, you will know who the local drug dealers are. The students know who they are and can refer you very easily. And um, many of us can testify through personal experience that it was never difficult to get our hands on liquor, even though theoretically we were barred from access to such substances until the age of 21. I can testify my own personal experience that I drank more from the ages of 15 to 21 than I have since 21. So there's the easy access argument I think falls apart pretty readily. What about his argument that most 
users of designer drugs are 12 to 17 year olds? Well, again, we don't have great data on this yet, but I think it's pertinent to note that the argument that drug use, illicit drug use generally, is a special menace to children has been uh, a common theme of prohibitionists for decades. They use it with uh, regard to traditional illegal drugs. And yet the 2013 survey on drug use and health by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration confirmed the findings of earlier surveys that the use of marijuana and other illegal drugs is predominantly an adult vice, well in excess of 80% of users are over the age of 18. And there is very little in the data regarding synthetic drugs, preliminary as it is, to indicate that the pattern is different with those substances. Moreover, synthetic drugs don't seem all that popular among teenagers to begin with. Natural marijuana, which is the mildest and least harmful of illicit drugs, is still by far their drug of choice. The University of Michigan's Monitoring the Future study in 2014 found that some 35% of high school seniors reported using marijuana during the previous year. And that figure has been remarkably steady over the past two decades or more. And it's a personal thing with me, but I get irritated every time I hear um, teenagers, and especially those in their late teens, described as children. Let's face it, high school seniors are either already adults, they're already 18, or they're 17-year-olds on the threshold, threshold of adulthood. They are hardly children. So I think we ought to keep that in perspective. Moreover, if we look at drug use among teenagers, the synthetic drug issue is not all that big a problem. Figures from the 2014 University of Michigan study the Monitoring the Future study, found that the use of synthetic marijuana actually declined steadily among all three groups surveyed, eighth graders, 10th graders, and 12th graders from 2010. Among 12th graders, for example, reported use in the previous 12 months of synthetic marijuana went from 11.4% to less than 6%. Now, this is not consistent with the theory of an epidemic of designer drug use. The trend in the use of bath salts showed a similar pattern. And moreover, contrary to the scare headlines in the media, that illicit drug didn't seem very popular to begin with. In 2012, fewer than 2% of high school seniors reported using bath salts during the previous 12 months. In the 2014 survey, it was barely 1%. Again, this is not consistent with the theory of an epidemic. Now, I don't want to argue that the use of synthetic drugs is without its problems. Synthetic drugs most certainly 
have caused problems. Most of the problems are associated with two things, either questions about purity, questions about dosage. And that is a problem with all illegal drugs. That's not unique to synthetics. But users of synthetic drugs have charged that nobody knows what's in this stuff. Well, again, that is an inherent problem within a prohibition system. Prohibition does a wonderful job of pushing the trade of a substance into the hands of the most unscrupulous elements in society. It empowers and enriches criminal enterprises. And those enterprises are not going to be overly concerned, to put it mildly, about the health and safety of their customers. So, and this has been a problem with traditional drugs, not just synthetics, that you get a dose, you're gonna use it, you have no idea how strong that dose might be, whether it might be perfectly safe or it might be lethal or something in between. And the same thing with the, um, the purity aspect. You may have drugs that are contaminated with other substances, even highly toxic substances. That is an inherent problem within a prohibition system. Prohibition certainly doesn't solve any of those problems. It makes them worse. And as with more traditional drugs, trying to outlaw synthetic drugs is a fool's errand. Even highly repressive, highly socially conservative societies have found that they have not been able to stem the use of synthetic drugs. In my study, I cite two examples, Russia and Iran, which I think everyone would concede are highly conservative societies. And in the case of Iran, they even execute drug traffickers. And yet both societies have experienced a very significant rise in the use of synthetic drugs. In Iran, for example, that is uh, rapidly displacing more traditional drugs. In Russia, it is uh, displacing a lot of the heroin that came from Afghanistan in previous decades. Now synthetics are apparently the drug of choice. So even these highly conservative, highly repressive societies have not been able to stamp out that kind of drug use. And when you consider our own society, for heaven's sakes, we're not even able to keep drugs out of maximum security prisons. What are our chances of keeping them out of a free and open society? The answer is we have no chance of doing that. Then what do we do? Do we ignore the problem? Well, not necessarily. I think there are things we can do. But the goal should be to channel the trade in these substances, as well as other currently illicit drugs, into legal channels, into the hands of reputable businesses. And that means requiring standards of labeling and dosage so that customers know what they're getting. And then, as citizens of a free society, they get to make their own decisions. 
Now, people seem, at least a percentage of the population, seems to have a great desire to get high one way or the other. For heaven's sakes, people have been sniffing glue and paint thinner for decades. We're not about to outlaw those substances either. They certainly wouldn't be effective if we tried. So again, the focus ought to be on a harm reduction policy, one that tries to channel the trade as much as possible into the hands of reputable businesses, guarantees accurate labeling and dosage, and then allows people to remain free to make their own decisions for good or ill. Nobody said the ability to make these decisions will always ensure wise decisions. That's a matter of individual responsibility. But the one thing we can be sure is that prohibition of synthetic drugs, prohibition of these designer drugs, is not going to work any better than prohibition has with regard to alcohol in the 1920s or early 1930s, or more traditional illicit drugs such as marijuana and cocaine in the decades since then. We ought to at least learn from that lesson and not apply the same failed model to this new phenomenon. Thank you. Thank you, Ted. Um, now let me introduce our two distinguished commentators. Since 1989, Eric Sterling has been the president of the Criminal Justice Policy Foundation, a private nonprofit educational organization that helps educate the nation about criminal justice issues and failed global drug policy. Mr. Sterling was counsel to the U.S. House of Representatives Committee on the Judiciary from 1979 until 1989, where he was a principal aide responsible for developing legislation. For example, and directly related to today's discussion, Mr. Sterling is counsel to the House Judiciary Committee, processed the emergency scheduling amendment in the 1984 Comprehensive Crime <laughs> Control Act, and the Designer Drug Enforcement Act of 1986. And he was the principal staffer in developing the Chemical Diversion and Trafficking Act of 1988, part of the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1988, that brought many of the common precursor chemicals under DEA jurisdiction, including the ban on the manufacture and distribution of three-neck round-bottom flasks which he tells me some people find hilarious. Uh, I, I, I don't know what that is, but he's going to explain it to us. Three-neck, round-bottom flasks. I don't have one, so um, maybe that's why, because it's against the law. OK, uh, but Mr. Sterling helped found and serves on the board of directors of Families Against Mandatory Minimums and Marijuana Majority and the Voluntary Committee of Lawyers and a number of other boards. Eric received uh, a BA in 1973 from Haverford College uh, and his JD from Villanova Law School in 1976. And if all that wasn't enough, he graduated from Hurricane Island Outward Bound School in 1968 and uh, led wilderness canoe trips and climbed the Matterhorn uh, in 1979. I can't top that. Uh, our second uh, commentator today is Jacob Hordenberger. He's the founder and president of the Future of Freedom Foundation. He was born and raised in Laredo, Texas, and received his BA in economics from the Virginia Military Institute and his law degree from the University of Texas. He was a trial lawyer for 12 years in Texas. He was also an adjunct professor at the University of Dallas, where he taught law in, and economics. 
1987, Mr. Hornberger left the practice of law to become director of programs at the Foundation for Economic Education. He's advanced freedom and free markets on talk radio stations all around the country and on a number of television shows, including Fox, Fox News' Neil Cavuto and Greta Van Susteren. And uh, he appeared regularly on uh, Judge Andrew Napolitano's show, Freedom Watch. So with that, uh, Eric, take it over. Thank you. Chris, thank you so much for that lovely introduction. And it's really a tremendous honor for me to be invited to speak to Cato. I've started attending a session such as this at Cato in, I think, 1981, uh, when their offices were right across the street from the Library of Congress. And certainly my thinking as a young congressional staffer was profoundly shaped by the speakers that I heard at Cato. Um, and to be asked uh, to speak to Cato is, is really a, a high point for me, um, and to be on this distinguished panel. Um, this question of synthetic drugs that we're addressing is um, uh, obviously a, a tremendous deja vu for me professionally, but it should be in some sense a deja vu for libertarians uh, my age or so. This is a copy of Inquiry Magazine from February 1984. Um, the title is The War on Drugs is Over, The Government Has Lost by Jack Schaefer, who was managing editor at the time. Jack is now a senior political writer here in Washington for Politico. And he lays out in this article, The War on Drugs is Over, The Government Has Lost, essentially the story that we're facing right now dealing with synthetics. You know, he, he, and, and so I want to sort of give him credit for sort of being you know, so prescient in, in this. You know, in, in this February 1984 article, before the legislation I was involved in uh, passed, he noted you know, that um, you know, early on that in California, synthetics for drugs like heroin has already begun. Unless we turn away from drug prohibition and learn to live with the drugs we already have, we will be awash in a flood of cheap and deadly synthetic drug substitutes. I think it is important that the drugs that we are talking about really are quite harmful, uh, in contrast to drugs like marijuana and heroin. Um, you know, heroin uh, legally uh, obtained, uh, safely injected, um, does not lead to crime, it doesn't cause tissue damage, it doesn't lead to insanity. Um, you're simply addicted and you have to manage your constipation. But you know, long, you know, heroin users survive and can live very productive lives with, uh, with a safe form of, 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 of heroin as opposed to criminal market forms. Um, the story of these analog synthetic problems is not a new one, it's an old one. That PCP, when it was banned, then spawned PCE and other kinds of analogs that were equally dangerous. It was a synthetic heroin that was available um, in the early 1980s called fentanyl. And it was, in fact, fentanyl was, is one of the drugs that's subject to the mandatory minimum penalties that Congress enacted in 1986. Um, a, uh, a drug, Demerol, um, uh, with, with an active ingredient called meperidine, there's a, uh, an analog of that that was being developed called M-triple-P. 
Well, the synthesis of MPPP is a very tricky synthesis, and it was being made improperly with a contaminant called MPTP. And people were now showing up at hospital emergency rooms with the, the symptoms of Parkinsonism. And this was sort of highlighted in the 1980s you know, as the, the dastardly consequences of those terrible drug traffickers without understanding that this was a dynamic that was flowed out of prohibition. Um, the alternative to finding heroin, finding opiates, has been an old one. There was um, something called teas and blues, where a drug Talwin and pyrobenzamine were combined, and people would try to get high that way, or people would try to use Tylenol-4. In the um, efforts to stop this, uh, in, in, the, in the library efforts, one problem is that there's a underground literature about how to make these drugs. And Jack makes the point that you know number of these articles were wrong, that they misstated how to synthesize methamphetamine, what the processes were, so that we even had you know um, backyard chemists botching the job, uh, supposedly following the recipes they got from the sort of precursors of the uh, of the internet. So Jack sort of Jack concludes his article to say, what can DEA do to stem the synthetics that it hasn't already tried? Control the chemicals needed? Well, in 1988, Congress passed a very, um, a very comprehensive precursor bill called the Chemical Diversion and Trafficking Act. It was very interesting to see that the chem at that time, the chemistry industry um, was really unable to sort of recognize they're now going to be regulated you know, not merely by EPA, but by DEA. And the DEA's approach is going to be very, very different. It was very interesting to, for me as a congressional staffer trying to see how um, you know, civil society, how the interest groups might respond, that here's an interest group that was unable to mobilize to sort of see what the implications were for them of this new regulatory approach. Um, we see that the drugs are still, the precursors are still getting into Mexico, they're still getting into the United States. So Jack asks, um, bust more labs. Well, we saw the consequence of busting more labs. Uh, this, you know, in the United States, we saw the, the, you know, the increased power that the Sinaloa cartel has had. Um, Jack says, well, license lab equipment. And this brings me to the story of the three-neck round-bottom flasks. Um, the synthesis of methamphetamine required that a particular piece of lab equipment co was commonly used called a three-neck round-bottom flask. That was the, you know, the standard laboratory piece. Um, and so Congress banned it. But it didn't ban four-neck <laughs> round-bottom flasks. And all, of course, one would have to do is put a plug into the fourth of the neck <laughs> And you would still be able to you know, have a four-necked round-bottom flask do everything that your three-necked round-bottom flask would happen. Now, I don't know how many of you know the name Alexander Shulgin. Sasha Shulgin you know, was a chemist in California who is sort of known for the um, reintroduction of MDMA, commonly known as ecstasy, into a popular society, that uh, a scientist who d was very interested in the exploration of drugs and how they affect consciousness. And um, uh, I uh, knew Sasha, um, you know, met him, you know, we went frequently, and, and at one point, you know, we're talking about chemistry, and I'm telling him the story of the three-neck round-bottom flask, and he says, that's the most hysterical, 
you know, act of Congress I could imagine. You know, I mean, you know, here's clearly Congress trying to do something, you know, which is you know so pointless on its face. That you know, I mean, you know, and, and he he so Sasha Shulgin was the one who sort of okay. just cracked up uh, <laughs> uh, regarding this. Um, and finally, of course, then, well, if, if you can't license the lab equipment and so on, well, then do you jail everyone who has access to a library? And of course, that doesn't happen. We know that there are already enormously harsh penalties for these drugs, for these analogs. And um, uh, Jack in, quotes a mentor of mine, uh, Dr. Arnold Treback from American University. And Arnold says, the clandestine synthetics may well soon swamp drug markets and deliver the coup de grace to a dying international drug system. Jack says, the plain truth is that in a society technologically as advanced as ours, the government can't keep people from experimenting with drugs. Advances in chemistry made the rise of the synthetics inevitable. The government crackdown has only speeded up the process and fouled the market with drugs of uncertain purity and potency. Um, we see these terms called synthetic marijuana. And why might there be synthetic marijuana? Well, the answer is obvious, because the law st still punishes harshly the production of high-quality marijuana that can be produced without contamination. We're now finding in the legal regulated marijuana markets in Colorado and Washington and the legal states that you know, we're putting in laboratory controls. I'm in Maryland on the Maryland Medical Cannabis Commission, where our regulations are going to require that every batch be tested by an independent testing laboratory. We can produce safe, high-quality cannabis, and we can eliminate the market for synthetic marijuana. Uh, these things called incense and bath, bath salts, they're clearly intended for human consumption. And it seems to me that the prosecutors who say, oh, there's nothing we can do, haven't been cr sufficiently creative in, in, you know, in, in, in getting the targets of these investigations. Why does a, you know, a gas station sell something by the cash register called incense or bath salts? You know, it's inconceivable to me that you, know, a, you can't send in a sufficient number of well-trained informants to get the clerk you know, to um, make some kind of statement. It indicates you know, that the clerk understands that this is for human consumption. Um, and so I'll simply, you know, conclude by saying that, you know, the government is struggling to, to go along. Um, in 2012, Congress uh, passed the uh, synthetic drug, um, it had one of these titles, excuse me, it was the Synthetic Drug Abuse Prevention Act of 2012, uh, as though that's going to happen. Um, they um, added to Schedule One five specific classes of cannabimimetic compounds, 15 specific mimetic, uh, cannabimimetic, can <laughs> easy for you to say. Yeah. <laughs> I'll see if I can say it. Cannabimimetic compounds were specifically banned, as well as 11 of the kinds of chemicals that are sold as bath salts. This will simply set up the opportunity for additional kinds of compounds to be sold. And the popular, the, the public's demand to get high, to relieve pain, uh, whether it's from the mentally ill or the mentally intellectually curious, the mentally sound and intellectually curious, that's going to take place. And the public remains at risk until these drugs are properly regulated and controlled, sold by licensed laboratories, 
come with appropriate kinds of warnings, and we abandon uh, the approach that I was a part of during the 1980s. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be back here at the Cato Institute, participating in a program here. Cato's done such great work advancing liberty, and it's a special honor to be on this panel that I think Ted knows that he's one of my real-life libertarian heroes, and so it's a special honor to be here on a panel discussing his paper. You know, as I was reading through this paper and as I was listening to Ted's remarks and Eric's remarks as well, I... I think the central message that was coming through to me throughout all this was just the utter futility of this war. Uh, that no matter what the drug warriors do, no matter what they do, it's not going to change anything. It's a classic case of, of just utter futility. And I, I was thinking back to an open letter uh, written in 1990, six years after this, this article that, that Eric was talking about an open letter by Milton Friedman and that appeared in the Wall Street Journal and it was to Bill Bennett, uh, who was the drug czar at that time. And Friedman said to Bennett the same sort of thing that, that Ted says in this paper. He says, Bill, you know, I beseech you, end this war on drugs. This is 25 years ago because it will not accomplish what you hope to accomplish. It will only bring death, destruction, and, and uh, a loss of well-being for the people in society. And then he cites, Friedman cites, a column that he wrote 17 years before, in 1973, when the drug war was really getting ramped up. And in that article, as a matter of fact, he made the same point that, that Ted makes in this, in this paper about designer drugs. Friedman pointed out that crack cocaine was developed as a response to the government's crackdown on regular crack. Regular and cocaine. Regular cocaine, I mean. Um, that because it was so expensive that, that, the, that the black market brought into existence the, the crack cocaine, much cheaper, more addictive, and of course that went on to ravage uh, people in the inner cities, especially African Americans. So here you have this, 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 this program that is utterly futile. And, and why would it surprise us? I mean, if you just look at basic laws of supply and demand that we all learn in our little economics classes, uh, that, that here the, the government enacts a law that says no one's permitted to take drugs anymore. And you see, their expectation is that everybody's going to obey the law. I mean, it's the law, right? So hey, we don't need to worry about it anymore. We just made it illegal. Well, life just doesn't work that way. You know, when you, when you make a peaceful activity illegal that people want to engage in, there's a high probability that people are going to continue engaging that in, in, in that activity despite what the law says, and especially for drug addicts uh, or people who just enjoy taking drugs. And so they violate the law, and, and then, of course, you put out of business, as Ted said, all the reputable businesses, the pharmacies, the pharmaceutical companies, and you, you, you turn over the distribution network to the unsavory types, the black market types, the drug lords, the drug gangs, the, the people that couldn't give a hoot whether somebody dies from corrupted drugs or not, as Ted pointed out. 
And, and so the, the, the drug warriors get really angry about that, and so they go after the drug, the drug lords and the drug gangs, and, and yeah, they incarcerate them on a regular basis. But all that does is generate extremely high prices, exorbitant profits that induces more people to get into the drug supply business, including regular, ordinary people who see a, a chance for a quick score and, of course, never dreaming that they're going to get caught. Now, if, if the consequences of this war were, were benign, if it was just a matter of giving something to do, jobs for federal judges and federal prosecutors and DEA agents and deputy sheriffs, I mean, that would be one thing. You know, we, we could probably say, okay, <laughs> let's let them have their jobs and things. But it's not like that. It, it, there are tremendous adverse effects from this thing. You've, you've got... Uh, uh, the corruption, of course, the bribes among the judiciary and the prosecutors and the law enforcement agents. You got the asset forfeiture laws where the, the cops are stealing money from people, innocent people, uh, on the highways. I mean, classic case of highway robbery. You've got the massive infringements on civil liberties, the, the bashing down of people's doors, the shooting of innocent people, shooting their pets. Uh, you got massive invasions of financial privacy. I mean, it just never stops. Just, just a few days ago, a, uh, a, a DEA or some, some U.S. official said about the, uh, the drug lord that just escaped from the Mexican prison, El Chapo. He says, that man has destroyed thousands of lives, and we're going to get him back into jail. <laughs> well, you know, the, that may be. But the fact is that the drug warriors have destroyed hundreds of thousands of lives, if not millions, with uh, death and destruction, and of course, you know, f overfilling the penitentiaries. The penitentiary is the biggest business in America today, and primarily because of the drug war. Uh, as, um, as Chris said, I grew up on the border uh, in Laredo, and so when, when I was in high school in the late 60s, when the drug war was starting to get going, I had friends whose lives were destroyed by the drug war with felony convictions and so forth for small quantities of marijuana. But we always went across the river into Nuevo Laredo um, on dates. We had a great time. It was a, it was a really nice place to grow up and have fun. Uh, tourists were flooding the border area to get a taste of old Mexico. Not anymore. Uh, what Friedman said and what Ted says today is that this drug war is, is, is just, it's, it's so destructive. It has destroyed the fabric of, of Mexican society. None of my friends in Laredo ever goes across the river anymore. It's too dangerous. And it's, that's because of the drug war. And, and one of the consequences, I'm glad that Ted brought this out in his paper, and I'm glad that he emphasized it in his talk, is, is this concept of overdose. I mean, we hear it all the time when somebody dies of a drug overdose. In, in virtually every case, it's never a drug overdose. That's what they say in order to detract attention away from the real cause of the problem. The real cause is the corrupted drug, the polluted drug that's a direct result of the illegality. Because as Ted points out, it, it, the drug lord, the drug gang, they, could, they couldn't care less if somebody dies. They certainly don't have to worry about a lawsuit, products liability, as they would in an unhampered market economy where pharmaceuticals are very careful about what kind of drugs are producing. They, they put the seals on the caps really well, and they're careful because they know that one death will cause a massive loss of market share, possibly bankruptcy, and, of course, big lawsuits. And, and that's one of the real, real tragic consequences of, of the war on drugs. It, addicts, okay, it's, addict, drug addiction's a tragedy, but it's even more bigger tragedy when they die 
because of the drug war itself. Uh, finally, I, I, I should wrap this up by saying that as futile as this drug war is, uh, as destructive as it is, that that's not the real reason why we should, we should uh, call for the end to this war. Uh, I mean, we see the futility like when they say about El Chapo, we're going to put him back in jail. We're going to make sure he, he's incarcerated for the rest of his life without parole like they did with Ross Ulbricht, the Silk Road guy. And, you know, for what? You know, what's the point? I mean, they put him back in jail or they don't. Nothing's going to change any more than, it, you know, it has changed over the last 40 years. But the real reason that we want to end this war on drugs is not just the futility of it, but because of the concept of human freedom. Ted mentioned Russia and, and Iran let, as conservative examples of the war on drugs. Let's look at the leftist examples like Cuba and North Korea and China and Vietnam all of which have drug laws and have a drug war. Because a drug war is inherent to a tyrannical, uh, totalitarian, authoritarian regime. It is only in free societies where people are, 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 where it's recognized that people have a right as a concept of human freedom itself to ingest whatever they want to ingest, no matter how destructive, no matter how dangerous, no matter how harmful. If there was ever any reason why we should end this, this, this futile war on drugs, it's because we, the American people, stand for freedom. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jacob and Eric. Um, I'm going to exercise my authority as a uh, tyrannical authority as the moderator and organizer of this event. Um, because uh, when you talk about futility, one of the cases that, that Eric uh, described, this now I know, the three-neck uh, round-bottom uh, jug, um, the, the, the futility of trying to ban, to make illegal uh, things that are kind of transparently innocuous, legal, uh, and then the, the process, the market being what it is, the process of getting around those restrictions. And this is a point, and I, I'll admit that this is a topic that I had not studied very much until I read Ted's paper and worked with him on it. Um, and I, I was struck by, in the case of synthetic drugs, the, the ease with which uh, the manufacturers of these chemical uh, substances can evade restrictions by making very minor changes to the chemical composition uh, to get around the, the, the law. But then, as we've already talked about, they may uh, inadvertently introduce new harms, right, to users who thought they were getting one thing and they're getting something else. Ted, you talk, can you talk a little bit more about that concept? Because what we've seen is some really quite tortured legal reasoning to describe, you know, we're going to make illegal substances like this and others like them sort of thing, right? If we have laws that are that vaguely worded, uh, it, it carries a whole host of threats to liberty, as Jacob talked about. <clears throat> well, first of all, I'd like to thank both uh, Eric and Jacob for some excellent comments on, on the uh, paper and the presentation. Uh, what Chris has pointed out is an inherent dilemma that prohibitionists face. They either can have uh, laws that are very specific, but when you're dealing with synthetic drugs, a very small change in chemical composition 
can suddenly create a substance that is no longer covered by law. And I believe the Washington Post article pointed out uh, that currently there are about 350 varieties of uh, synthetic drugs and counting. This, this constantly changes. So if you have specific bans, this is like playing whack-a-mole. You, you ban one substance and then you get its first cousin or second cousin and that is perfectly legal. And prosecutors have to go after that and legislators have to go after that. The alternative is to enact very broad bans, but as we have seen with other laws that are vague and overly broad, that can lead to massive abuses of authority. And people who may have perfectly legitimate businesses suddenly find themselves under scrutiny, under prosecution, and at times not even uh, being clear on what law they have violated. So that is uh, an option that I think is inherently destructive to a free society. But this is, again, an uh, uh, inevitable problem that prohibitionists confront, particularly with synthetic drugs, that all you need is an enterprising chemist to change the composition of a substance a little, and the specific bans simply don't work. So there is an irresistible pressure to come up with broader and broader, ever more vague bans despite the destructive effects that that has on the rule of law. Eric, do you want to add to that? Sure, go ahead. Yeah, Chris, I do. And, and Ted, you've really put your finger on this. That in the, in the, at the committee level, as we were trying to figure out what to do with, with, with the call mm -hmm. to take this action, there was a great concern about due process. Due process mm -hmm. being how do you provide real notice to the public of what is permitted and what is prohibited. And we felt that we, we, our witnesses spoke about this particular problem, that in the research into trying to find new compounds for medical purposes or otherwise, um, you are going to look at existing drugs uh, because you're that's your starting point. The, the, you know, these, the, we already know that these drugs are effective you know, in, in, in a particular psychiatric way. Let's see if tweaking it produces a, an effect that is really useful in medicine. And so there was this concern. And so we put in this language about intended for human consumption, that, the, that, um, that those who are doing this kind of research, this experimentation for research purposes or for scientific purposes, they're not covered by the prohibition. The danger I think we face now in 2015 is that Congress is going to say, well, you know what, this human consumption thing, that's too much of a, of a barrier. It's too much of a barrier for, for Congress. Let's just take that out because these Chinese, they're shipping the stuff and we can't prove that these Chinese intended it for human consumption in the U.S. They're too, too far insulated from the actual consumption. When you take that out, then you end up with a prohibition that is really squishy. You know, essentially any chemical that may produce these kinds of effects. And so, so you have you know, uh, a professor at a college who is doing research and suddenly you know, runs afoul because uh, 
they say, well, this is just too close to a prohibited drug. And, and, and so it is this, the danger in this current kind of political crime, climate will, I think, present a real problem if this law gets sort of further watered down. All right, very good. We, uh, we do have some time for questions. Uh, just a few notes. Uh, please wait for the microphone for the benefit of those watching online. Uh, and identify yourself and your affiliation if you have one. And one more thing, uh, the, the Jeopardy rule applies here at the Cato Institute, which means please phrase your question in the form of a question. So with that, uh, uh, in the back, on the, on the wall there, right there. I guess you would call me a prohibitionist. I've been involved in this since the Nixon administration. Um, uh, my name is Paula Gordon. Uh, I have a website called GordonDrugAbusePrevention.com. Can you speak up just a little bit, ma'am? Uh, I had I, my name is Paula Gordon. I had uh, I have a website called GordonDrugAbusePrevention.com. Okay. Um, I also had a nonprofit organization in California, in Berkeley, actually based in Berkeley, which was called the the Committee for Psychedelic Drug Information, and we tried to do everything we could to dissuade individuals, particularly youngsters and, and uh, college-age students, not to use uh, marijuana and other psychedelic drugs. Now, what you've overlooked, all of you have overlooked in this discussion, is that the fact that if you purify, so-called purify, any of these substances, you still have a psychoactive substance which is addictive which can be addictive. Uh, longitudinal studies in recent years, have in the last year, have shown that uh, one in six youngsters, young people, uh, become addicted. One in 10 adults become addicted to marijuana. And what you're overlooking is that in order to ascertain the harmfulness of a substance, a pharmaceutical substance, you have to go to the active principle with THC, no amount of THC uh, should be used, and even MPP has come out against it, uh, with this statement, uh, by someone who's driving. You should not drive under the influence of marijuana. Okay. Okay, so the now, question is, if you purify the, the substances and you get around the, the problem of them being contaminated, you still have the issue of uh, addiction or or use from okay that's exactly. the question okay that's part of the question the other part is uh, do you have you read the medical research do you know that there are people who contribute to the medical research who have not read the medical research uh, and and they cherry pick those things that they they can but but they the major uh, Point that I'd like to two two points. I'd uh, like to leave you please, from. please, ma'am. This has gone on very. So we have a question on the table, and then let's let the panelists respond. Just Thank you. One one scientific fact and that question. is that uh, do you know that uh, there was research in the '60s which showed that uh, THC in normal human subjects, this is why Harris is fell, uh, can cause idiosyncratic psychotomimetic effects. There was a question. Did you know? Right. Okay, so there we go. Two questions. Two questions, actually. Did you know? <clears throat> First of all, I'm always wary about the argument that some people can become addicted to substances, therefore we ought to outlaw those substances. 
you can do that with uh, lots of substances. You can do it with all forms of behavior. A certain percentage of people become addicted to gambling, so therefore we ought to all, outlaw all games of chance. Uh, some people become addicted to uh, high-fat foods, therefore we ought to outlaw all high-fat foods. The, obviously, some people become addicted to alcohol. That's why we have alcoholics. So therefore, we have the right to outlaw alcoholic beverages. That is not a sufficient reason, particularly in a free society. Some people are going to be susceptible to uh, poor decisions, poor behavior, compulsive behavior. But that is a price that we all have to pay to live in a free society unless we want some benevolent guardians of public morality to dictate everything that we do. And that is a price I don't think any of us want to pay. Chris? Go ahead, Eric. When I hear someone talk about the risks uh, of addiction or the risks of uh, adverse uh, psychiatric consequences. Um, I think about the fact, I, I, hear, I think of the jingle of Dunkin' Donuts, which is America runs on Dunkin'. <laughs> because America runs on risk. Our entire economic enterprise is based on risk. We look at, at people who want to be athletes and we admire their risk. People try to climb the Matterhorn and fail. People try to do all kinds of things and fail. Risk is built into the DNA of America. And the risk of addiction, the risk of these effects is real, but small. And it's a risk that people should be educated about. And folks who want to stop this never ever acknowledge the benefits of the use of these drugs. These drugs are beneficial, and the evidence of that is the tens of millions of people who want to use them, not because they're addicted, but because the effects of these drugs are pleasurable, the effects are inspiring, the um, transcendent. These are real effects of these drugs, and people want to use them, and that's why they're going to continue to use them, notwithstanding the risks. Jacob, you want to add some to this? Go yeah, ahead. I, I think the lady makes a, a couple of interesting points. Uh, first of all, on her, uh, on her um, activity in, in apprising people of the dangers of drugs, I, I think that's a, a, entirely something to be applauded. Um, there are some... Sorry. There are drugs that are that are very dangerous and so forth. And and one one of the beefs I have with sometimes in the marijuana legalization movement is that the argument is made that marijuana is not legal. I mean, not harmful. And I find that problematic because my position is that even if it that sort of implies if it is harmful, it should be illegal. <laughs> and and my argument in terms of freedom is that look. I'm assuming that drugs are absolutely the worst thing in the world for me. But that's my business. That is no business of the state. If I want to sit in my home to, to ingest heroin or cocaine or LSD or meth, that's my business. That's what a, being a free person is all about. Now, she makes a valid point about driving on government-owned roads, public roads, uh, or you know externalities of, of the drug war, children. I mean, their children's rights fall in a different category. But I say that if you legalize drugs, 
get rid of all the unsavory suppliers, which would go out of business immediately, you're much better off having the supply and distribution of drugs with pharmaceuticals, pharmacies, who are much more responsible when it comes to uh, selling to children and minors than the unsavory elements that we have today. So in terms of, of freedom, legalize it, but keep people like her to apprise people of what a, what a horrible thing it is to become a drug addict. I have no problems with that at all. Uh, sir, right here. And then you. Howard Woldridge, retired detective with LEAP, Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. Please, this question can be for, for Ted. On the relative harm of these synthetic drugs, despite vicious rumors, I never went past marijuana. It was a terminal drug for me, so I have <laughs> no clue what cocaine does, etc. I went to a briefing in the Congress three years ago. Congressman Pitt of uh, Eastern Pennsylvania had uh, a dog and pony show with DEA, and he brought in an ER doc from one of his hospitals who said, and gave us a couple cases of where somebody came in and they used bath salts or whatever, and they acted uh, badly. They did things that were harmful. It reminded me, of course, as a police officer, guy jumps out of a car at 40 miles an hour. He's drunk. Alcohol was a factor. <laughs> said, I want to get away from his girlfriend. The question is, how, relatively, for so people who understand, who know alcohol can understand it, how relatively dangerous is bath salts or K2 in comparison to um, whiskey, alcohol, or some other drug that we all pretty much have a common experience with? I would say this, these would be among the more dangerous substances. Uh, in part, again, we talked about this before because you're never quite certain what all is in it, which creates its own set of problems. Um, the effects seem to be somewhat unpredictable. But it's good to always keep this in perspective. We've heard these scare stories before with regard to other substances. Uh, we remember all the stories about crack cocaine 25, 30 years ago and the brilliant penalties that were enacted uh, 10 times as uh, severe as for powdered cocaine. As though there was hundreds of times. As though there was that kind of real difference in the effects. Um, going back further, you remember the LSD scare, those of us who were old enough in the 1960s, how this was going to absolutely destroy American society. Um, if you want to go back farther, uh, you go back to the late 1930s and reefer madness. And obviously marijuana was uh, a drug that was going to completely destroy Western civilization. So I think we have to keep these scare stories in mind. There is that sense of deja vu. I would say with regard to some of the, the synthetic drugs, they appear to be more dangerous and more volatile than most of the natural uh, psychoactive drugs. So it, it's good to monitor this. Education, definitely encourage people to stay away from these. But that ought to be part of a larger package to create a legal drug structure and one that eliminates prohibition so that there are safe legal alternatives for people who want to use psychoactive substances. And we can continue this, this crusade of, of trying to prevent drug use. Uh, you know, I'm 
one of these people who, if we've tried a policy for four decades or more and the policy has failed, we ought to try something else, not just continue applying that same model to new substances. That's just me. Uh, Mr. Wildrich, you know, in talking about alcohol, uh, in the period of pro alcohol prohibition, bootleg alcohol was adulterated with methyl alcohol and other compounds, and drinkers were blinded and people were paralyzed. There was a term called Jake leg, which was a kind of paralysis in which uh, people were permanently injured from their use of, of alcohol. And that, of course, we know is the function of prohibition, not of the legal control. Are these drugs harmful? The evidence is of people who present themselves at, uh, to the police and, and so on. Yes, these seem to be quite harmful. Um, they are harmful as a consequence of the market distortions that law enforcement creates for the drugs that people want to get. And that, you know, there was a, the uh, article in the New York Times Magazine last Sunday, people saying, well, you know, I didn't want to use these drugs, but they were easier to get. They're being, they're being, they're being represented as being legal. Um, and until the drugs that people want to use that can be produced safely with better warnings are available, we're going to see this kind of, of, of tragedy happen again and again and again. Uh, right down here in the front, and then we'll get this gentleman uh, in the middle row there. Yes, sir. Hi, good afternoon. My name is Martin Moulton, former Libertarian DC candidate. Um, I'm trying to read your book, uh, The Fire Next Door, Mr. Carpenter, and it's uh, reads like the worst horror story I've ever <laughs> And uh, I, tried to, I watched the uh, movie down the street, uh, Cartel Land, which is just full of mm -hmm. guns and violence. Um, how much does all this scare, these scare tactics and the war on drugs just benefit the gun industry arm of the military industrial complex because everyone has to have a gun in this war. The police have to have more guns, the drug dealers <clears throat> have to have more guns, and they all try to outpace each other. Good question. I think that's a subset. Uh, it probably does uh, certainly create incentives to uh, uh, to have uh, greater and greater armaments. Um, but I think you have a drug war industry that has a vested interest in creating as many horror stories as humanly possible. And it's often difficult to tell whether those who are putting out the stories um, are simply doing this to further their own career and institutional interests or whether they believe their own propaganda. And I think there's probably a bit of both. But you're talking about a multi, multi-billion dollar a year industry that is locked up with current drug policy at the local, state, and national level. And they are not going to go quietly into that good night of, of legalization. They're going to use every tactic imaginable to try to preserve the prohibition system. And scare stories certainly serve that agenda. Uh, they are tremendously effective. I, th I think the Len Bias case with regard to cocaine use in the mid-1980s was one factor, and there are others certainly, 
that really stop the momentum toward a harm reduction strategy, if not decriminalization, if not full legalization of drugs. It reversed that. The whole zeitgeist changed. And uh, it's been a good many years to, again, switch that back to a more rational discussion. Uh, I don't think the, the drug war industry likes to have a discussion about having synthetic drugs within a legal framework. They want the prohibition model applied to this. This is a, a job enhancement uh, process at a, at a minimum. And they're, they're going to keep pushing these stories whenever humanly possible. Chris, um, this warning about the drug war industry is actually a warning in the final report of the National Commission on Marijuana and Drug Abuse in 1973, the Schaefer Commission. They observed that this is a real danger that, that the current approach was, was bringing about. I, I think that part of what we are missing, you know, even Jacob described penitentiaries as the biggest business in America, obviously, you know, uh, making a rhetorical point. But the reality is that as large as this industry is, it's infinitesimal in our 14 trillion, or it's probably bigger than that now. And the point that I want to make is that the collateral consequences of our drug enforcement policies undermine the entire economy. That, you know, Jacob didn't fully talk about the impact of the tens of millions of people who have drug convictions, which means that their employment prospects are reduced. And for an economy then that depends upon consumption, means those folks are out of the economy. Tens of millions of people are out of the economy. If you have a drug conviction, you don't get a, you don't, you're not able to get a job with a paycheck so you don't get a car loan, so you don't pay, get a car made in Detroit. So you see the, you know, the war on drugs kicks off in the 1970s, and American car sales start going down relatively. Now, there obviously were other factors. But think of any particular part of the economy in which you are invested in. If you simply have a, uh, a pension plan, a 401k, however you're invested, all of your assets in American industries are less valuable because those industries are selling less than they could otherwise sell if we didn't have a war on drugs cutting the economic power of the American public day after day. Amen. And, uh, right. and, 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 and therefore, that, our, our message needs to be to the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the National Federation of Independent Businesses. Your membership are being hurt by drug prohibition. You have an obligation to, you know, to speak on behalf of the American economy to point out this is hurting the bottom line of every American investor and, and other than the private prison industry, other than this little insignificant, the gun industry, these small little pieces of supply, those are tiny when you think about the implications for the rest of us. Uh, sir, right there. You've been very patient. Hi, uh, Bernardo Rico. I'm an uh, independent drug policy researcher. I li lived in Central America and Mexico for over uh, 10 years. I'm just curious um, for all the panelists what you believe are the realistic uh, policy objectives for the U.S. government, perhaps for other Latin American governments that are thinking more about drug policy reform because you have countries in Russia and China <coughs> which are completely separate or distinct. And the reason why I ask that is because, quite honestly, I think 
coming at it from the complete either prohibitionist drug, uh, drug war regime, which is really something of the past. I mean, if you talk to most kind of um, current, up-to-date uh, drug policy folks, they, they realize the drug war is over. But at the same time, uh, quite honestly, gentlemen, when you talk about you know, the unfettered access to all kinds of drugs, ultimately, I mean, you can hold out that as an ultimate. No one proposed unfettered access, I don't well, believe. Liber I mean, regulated drugs, to me, ultimately is unfettered access. And the reason why I say that is we have, I mean, and just to say one example um, and, and actually proposing something else, because, you know, there are in-between policies. You know, I don't look at it as a false dichotomy between prohibition and complete regulation. I mean, there are places like Portugal that have the decriminalization of all drugs. Now, it's a little bit messy because you cannot technically import drugs and you can technically not sell them. But there, people are not penalized for actually consuming drugs all the way to heroin. And the reason why, actually, you guys put out a, a pretty good report, a little bit biased in my opinion, but you put it out about four or five years ago that said, you know, the conclusion was that it actually addressed the policy concern of the Portuguese government, which was heroin addiction. And that's actually a growing problem in this country. It's small, but it's there. And the, one, the last point that I'll make, and so you guys can answer the questions, is the following. In, even in the early 20th century, there was no prohibition per se, but we were actually beginning to prohibit, quote unquote, legal drugs at the time. And pharmaceutical companies, not pharmaceutical companies, pharmacies themselves and doctors were not all necessarily prescribing drugs the way they should be. <coughs> and today, when we invented a more kind of, let's just say, um, easier, uh, more accessible way to um, use morphine through prescription opiates in the early 2000s, you had pharmaceutical companies marketing those drugs quite strongly to doctors and hospitals. And if anyone who you know, goes into a hospital today, what's the first thing they ask you is how much of whatever you know, opiate that you want to alleviate your pain. I'm not saying that's a bad thing per se, but that has contributed to an increase in opiate addiction, which has led to more of an increase in heroin addiction. And the heroin addiction actually, the heroin problem, quote unquote, has been a result of pure, cheaper heroin, not from you know, heroin that's actually gives you kind of a, <coughs> some type of side effect. Okay. Do you discern a question in that? Because go ahead, Eric. <laughs> the um, problem that you've uh, put your finger on, which is misprescribing doctors and the excesses of the pharmaceutical marketing enterprise of legal opiates. Um, I think in many cases is correct. Um, the fact that we have prohibition means that those folks who have become medically addicted are then stigmatized. They don't have access to uh, the drugs. That suddenly their prescription gets cut off and they turn to heroin because heroin's a lot cheaper but stays off dope sickness. Um, I th my sense is that you, need, you do need better regulation of physicians. You need to change the culture of prescribing. When I had, uh, uh, I had uh, some oral surgery recently and I was given 20 of Vicodin, there's never a follow-up like, what happened to that? How did you use it? I didn't, you know, it turned out I didn't need any of it. So now it's sitting around, you know. It's inconvenient to dispose of these excess narcotics. Well, I paid good money for those. You know, this, you know, um, repeatedly, you know, I, I had shoulder surgery, similar kind of thing for my, get a bunch of narcotics or prescribe, no follow-up. 
No, and so there really are ways in which we could do a better job culturally in controlling how legal uh, opioids are made available. Um, and that by ending the stigma, and the stigma is inherent in the prohibition, people are going to be able to not go to criminal markets, but people are going to be able to say, you know, now I, I'm, I, I'm addicted, what do I do about it? Mm. And you, you, can, you can then wean people off, people, you know, you don't have people then saying, oh, I'm addicted, I've got to try to find another doctor to scam, I've got to scam the ER. I mean, all of this, all of this flows out of the prohibition approach and the stigmatization saying you're an outlaw, this is wrong, this is immoral, and it's not, you know, it's not immoral to be addicted. It should not, never be a crime to be an addict. Um, and prohibition keeps driving that. Go ahead, Ted. Yeah, uh, a couple of things. First of all, I, I, no one I think has ever argued that legalization is a panacea, that everything is going to work beautifully in a legalized system. But I would defy the advocates of prohibition who have identified the various problems associated with drug abuse to show how those problems are made better through prohibition. And that simply isn't the case. And there are lots of unintended side effects, which prohibitionists almost never talk about. With the international environment, I think we've certainly seen a sea change in attitude. Uh, the Portugal experiment was uh, a key development. And as you note, we put out a study five years ago on that experiment. And one of the things they, I think that was most important about the Portugal experiment is that it blew up a lot of the prohibitionist myths that you were going to see soaring drug use rates. No, we didn't. You were going to see soaring crime rates associated with a legalized system or a decriminalized system. No, they didn't. In fact, the trend has been in the other direction. And the stranglehold of the prohibitionist paradigm uh, on international policy, I think, if it hasn't been broken, it's in the process of breaking. You're certainly seeing other countries that may have thought for many, many years that the US-led policy was pure idiocy. But for a variety of reasons, basic prudence, um, you don't tell that to the world's superpower. Now uh, governments are willing to deviate from it. The uh, reforms in Uruguay, I think, being the latest clear example of that, where you have legalized commerce in marijuana, despite Washington's continuing objections. So I think we're, we're at least in a period of ferment in terms of, of policy now, and we'll see where that goes. I'm a strong believer in uh, that sage philosopher Yogi Berra's observation, it's, it ain't over till it's over. So even though I see favorable trends away from prohibition and toward a legalized system, I'm not going to pop the champagne corks, assuming that's legal at the time, <laughs> until we see better results. Yeah. Uh, okay, in the back, I mean, the gentleman's very, very patient. Thank you. Uh, it, it appears that uh, throughout human history, uh, 
human beings have been using substances to uh, help cope with uh, daily life, whether it would be stimulants or something to relax them. Uh, and that has continued uh, throughout human history. So therefore, do you think that uh, this uh, supply of drugs is only uh, uh, catering or, or, or pro providing uh, humans now today uh, with something that they have been desired for centuries that is inherent in human nature that cannot be legislated against? It's an excellent question. It certainly would seem that way, given the, the long, long history that cuts across different cultures and so on. Um, I think there is at least a percentage of the population that feels it needs that kind of artificial boost. Um, I've never entirely understood that, but I, th I think it's enough of a phenomenon that uh, it's clear you can't pass laws against it. That, that's, I think, the one lesson that is indisputable at this point. You can try to prevent it as much as possible, but you're going to have a significant percentage of the population that will continue to use those substances regardless of the laws. That simply is not going to deter them from, from doing what they want to do. Whether that's good for them or bad for them, they're simply going to do it. Jacob, go ahead. I think that's a very deep and profound question, especially in the context of American society, because, you know, we obviously live in a very controlled society. And, and you have to add, I mean, look, every kid's forced into a public school system or at least a private school system that's licensed by the state. He spends 12 years there receiving this message, drugs are bad. And yet, over 40 years, the problem has only gotten bigger. And why is that? And of course, I think drug addiction is, is rooted in family of origin issues, but I think there's, there's wider societal implications here. Why was there so much more alcoholism in the Soviet Union? And, and I, I think there might well be a correlation that the more controlled your society is, the more paternalistic your government is, the more despair there is in that society. And the, the less economic activity, the dynamism that comes from a truly free market society is absent. And I think the plight of the American people is significantly worse than, say, the people in Cuba or North Korea. And, and that's because of the, the words of Johann Goethe, that none are more hopelessly enslaved than those who falsely believe they are free. And I think that when you combine that control society with the concept that this is all freedom, that that might well be a cause of why there's so much widespread drug abuse and mind-altering use uh, in American society. I see a dissertation topic in the works. <laughs> Correlation between drug use and levels of freedom. Sir, in the back, right next to the man holding the microphone, very wisely. Mm. Uh, Hi, uh, Casey Harper, the Daily Caller News Foundation. Um, I'm very interested in the three-necked bottom. <laughs> three neck round bottom get it right right yes. sorry sorry I'm, I'm, no, I'm no bureaucrat so um my question two questions really is first could you just quickly go back through the like a, a brief history of that regulations particularly and where it is now and then i guess all of you give more uh details or examples about uh how i mean you mentioned that there's maybe 430 variations of these synthetic drugs H has it really examples of the whack-a-mole effect where 
things were changed and then the government tried to address it and then it was just tweaked a little bit more and, and tried to address things. Sure. In uh, 1987, 1988, as Congress was developing the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1988, which were included amendments to the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986, DEA said that this particular piece of equipment was a major part of the problem in the production of methamphetamine and proposed that it be banned, and therefore by act of Congress as one of the little features of the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986, which, uh, 1988, which is a pretty fat bill, uh, this was enacted and uh, remains part of the Controlled Substances Act. Um, and, and if they change it, you know, we're, 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 gonna, we're all going to get rich because we're going to start buying, uh, buying uh, this. It's going to be made legal. In the, yeah. uh, go ahead, Ted. Use a couple examples. There are a couple examples in the paper, obviously. Yeah. Uh, you have... Uh, most of the laws that were passed before about 2011, 2012, were specific bans. They went after specific chemical substances. And again, what lawmakers are finding is that the ink was barely dry on that law. And some enterprising chemist in, uh, in Shanghai or wherever would change the composition of uh, one molecule and suddenly the law didn't apply to that substance anymore. So the move since 2011, 2012, both at the national level and at the state level, has been toward very broad bans, uh, attempting to outlaw entire families of substances, if you will, and try to uh, deal with the problem in that fashion, that anything that faintly resembles an outlaw drug will be considered in that same category and is therefore outlawed. And again, as I mentioned earlier, that deals with one problem, but it also creates another in that you inherently have laws that are vague and overly broad. And I'm not sure that's a particular pattern we want to encourage in this country. We've seen abuses in other areas with such laws. And that is something we, we always have to be cognizant of. And we also have an instance of at least one that's cited in the paper of an ex post facto prosecution where someone was convicted of, or, or not convicted, but charged with violating the sale of a, of, of a substance that at the time that she was selling it was not illegal. It was made illegal after she was charged, right? Wasn't that? Yes, that was, Texas? The, that was the oops factor, the Texas case where, yes, uh, the woman was charged with marketing an illicit substance, and the charge was filed, I think it was something like three months before the Texas legislature had outlawed that, that substance. Go ahead, Eric. I'm sorry. Chris, I just wanted to uh, comment on, on something that Ted said about the question of prohibitions which are specific versus narrow, because the Designer Drug Enforcement Act of 1986 was in, essentially very, very broad. It, it says that controlled substance analogs should be treated like Schedule I substances. And then said controlled substance analog means a substance the chemical structure of which is substantially similar to the chemical structure of a controlled substance in Schedule I and II, um, and which has a stimulant, uh, well, I mean, you know, or 
you know, it has a stimulant and dep depressant or hallucinogenic effect similar to that. So that's pretty broad, and that's 1986. Um, you know, so the, the early, the, the approach at least that point was sort of very broad laws uh, being enacted, um, and, and that's still on the books. Mm -hmm. yeah. That was true at the federal level. The state laws that were enacted ah, for oh, the most I'm part sorry. were more specific. Important distinction yeah. between feds yeah. and states. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, uh, one last question right here. Uh, we must be very patient. And then uh, the last one. Make it quick. Yeah. My name is Li Yang. Thanks for your presentation. I just wonder if you can give more information about, let's say, prohibition versus a black market, how the price go and down, how much people had to pay for their really necessary disease or whatever they say, the doctor advised that would be very helpful. Second is uh, if the marijuana or something of that sort, if not really, it's not really a probable cause under the law, but so people, uh, law enforcement use that abuse of power and authorities and they then create a, a, a prison population and uh, reduce their opportunity for employment and so on. How much loss economically for a household, for the people who suffer, and for the society as a whole? So cost of the prohibition strategy more generally. Ted, you've written yeah, about that quite a bit. Excellent, excellent question. Um, something I've pointed out that so many law, so many lives have been blighted by prohibition. And one, uh, I guarantee you there's a gentleman who's sitting in the Oval Office today who wouldn't be had he run afoul of the drug laws. He, Barack Obama admitted that he used illegal drugs, but he was one of the lucky ones. He didn't get caught. But how many others have had their lives, their careers blighted because of that? And I think as Eric points out, the cost of that would be measured in probably in the hundreds of billions of dollars a year. So this, this is, this is a, a massive effect, adverse effect on our society. And um, this is something that we're going to see more common with regard to synthetic drugs if they become more popular in terms of, of total use. And people are going to have their lives disrupted because of questionable judgment on their part. But I think we have to make a distinction between activities that are not good for you, activities that result from questionable judgment on the one hand, and crimes on the other. And we tend to blur that distinction in our society to our great societal detriment. All right, on that note, thank you all very much uh, for attending today. Now, if you will join us hope, uh, on the second floor in the George M. Yeager Conference Center for a luncheon, our conference folks will show you the way. Thank you all very much.